Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could have edited that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I said all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. What happens when you ask 20 Australian women from widely different backgrounds, races, beliefs, and identities to take up the challenge of writing about rage? Today, I speak to three incredible writers who have contributed to this remarkable book, Women of a Certain Rage. First up, Renee Pettit-Ship worked with asylum seekers in detention. Her collection of poetry, The Sky Runs Right Through Us, was shortlisted for the Dorothy Hewitt Manuscript Prize and won the Greg Crombie Work of the Year in Humanities Research Awards and the WA Premier's Book Award for an Emerging Writer. That's very impressive. Welcome, Renee. That was really lovely to be here. Lovely to have you, and I'm looking forward to this. Hopefully, what's going to be a very passionate and uh, hopefully rage fueled conversation. <laughs> Claire G. Coleman's first novel won a State Library of Queensland Black and White Writing Fellowship for an unpublished manuscript by an Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander writer. Her second novel, The Old Lie, was published by Hachette. Welcome, Claire. Hi. All these impressive intros. Now, Eva Cox is currently an adjunct professor at University of Technology. She's committed to feminists changing societies so we all share fairer <laughs> collective rights and responsibilities. I couldn't agree more. Welcome, Eva. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I seem to have got myself involved in doing quite a lot of writing under the vague idea. I'm interested in your comment about do we change the world? I've been trying it for some time. <laughs> well, I haven't quite done it yet. It's gone backwards. <laughs> oh, I know. It does feel like that sometimes. Mm. We're going to talk about that and how we have to just keep chipping away, I think. Now, I want to talk about this book. It's, it's an amazing book and it's so inspirational. And as a woman, you know, everything resonates with you when you read it. And you do feel rage, but you also feel hope. And and so women of a certain age, 
women of a certain rage is a series of life stories about women's rage introduced by Liz Bursky, a novelist, former journalist and ABC broadcaster. Now, the first line in the book is a quote that says, let us go forth with fear and courage and rage to save the world. So that's kind of touching on that, Eva. What did you think when this idea was first pitched to you? I thought, good, I've actually got an excuse of getting cranky on paper instead of just doing it when I happen to feel like it. <laughs> gave your rage purpose. I, well, it gave, gave, gave me an outlet to be talk about being enraged because it's very difficult. I don't know whether other people feel this, but women are not supposed to get enraged. We're not supposed to be cross. We're not supposed to be throwing our weight around. We're supposed to be nice. And even if we're cross, we're supposed to be cross in a nice way, because if we're not nice, we're not real women. And we can be put down for the fact that we're displaying these sort of agro tendencies that are not supposed to be part of our genes or whatever else it is that makes us women. So the idea of actually writing about rage and being asked to write about rage was very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) And it was exciting to read as well. Now, Claire, what about you? What did you think when this idea was pitched to you? Well, I, I was fascinated by the idea of um, a book of women writing about rage because, um, as Eva said, we, we're not supposed to be angry. We're supposed to um, kind of take it on the chin. We're supposed to just put up with it when things make us angry. And, and women uh, in our society, particularly um, women of colour and Aboriginal women, have a lot to be angry about. Mm. And, and, and I, think, I think sometimes the... Uh, prohibition against us showing our anger or um, letting our rage out is part of the structure of control mm-hmm. to stop us fighting back against the oppression. Um, the, this idea that if we get angry, we kind of we've lost the fight is, it, I think, it's just there to weaken us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Can I tell you a slightly funny story, which I think illustrates some of the sorts of problems of this? Is when I went down to my local bookshop just after the book was published. I noticed it on the uh, on a shelf, and I looked to see where they'd put it. They'd put it in the self help shelf. Oh, <laughs> I don't know where else they put it, and whether we found it there. So I went out very indignantly. I've got an account there, and they know me. And I said, "Why have you put that book in the self help thing?" And I thought it was very significant because the idea of women and rage obviously was a health issue, and we were there obviously to correct it. <laughs> And I think I don't know whether anybody else has checked up where they put it. I did send a note to the publisher, but I just thought it was actually very symbolic of the whole relationship of women and rage. It was a, mm. an issue that we were trying to get rid of. Well, maybe it is a self-help issue. Maybe yeah. the self-help we can teach people is just let it out. Yes. Maybe people will pick it up thinking that it'll help them bottle their rage in and they'll read it <laughs> and it'll free them from this idea that you're not allowed to be angry, which is be fantastic. I actually suggested they put it under political. I I thought more people would buy it if it turned up under political. (laughs) Now, Renee, what did you think when this was pitched to you? Did you think along the same lines as Claire and Eva? Were you delighted to be able to show your rage? Well, it it happened in this really interesting process, actually, because um, it came about when I was um, giving the speech for the Premier's award and when I won, and it was terrifying. I I got up on the stage and uh, essentially said thank you for my award except you are responsible for these horrific policies. And it was terrifying. And I really appreciate Eva's comment of the enormous expectation to be nice. And I felt this enormous social expectation that I was meant to take my award and say thank you very much and and be grateful. And I was extremely grateful. um, But actually, 
it was the moment in which I could take the policies right up to the people who made them. And it was an incredible experience. And um, the folk from Fremantle Press were at the ceremony and and I think this is how this process came about. So <laughs> I was absolutely wrapped when they asked me and I was, I was full of um, indignant rage and, and um, was so grateful to have another place to keep going with that conversation. But isn't that wonderful? Well <laughs> yeah, that you were sort of, you know, I don't know if you were concerned about saying that, but you knew that there were expectations of what you should have said, but you didn't do it. And then that spoke to people and resonated with people. Yeah. Like, that's great. That's amazing. That's what we need to do more of, I think. Now, on this line, Eva, you talk about difficult women. I love this because mm. you're right. We're not meant to be difficult. We're meant to be nice and, you know, attractive and all those kind of things. Tell me about difficult women and why we're not supposed to be difficult or what that means. Well, it happened many, many years ago. I was actually in the library at King's Cross and I was fairly cross about something. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> and I thought even if it was King's Cross, I don't think it affected me. Uh, but I, I was in front of the biography thing and I thought, I'll just have a look through and see what happens, you know, with, where, where the biographers of women place the women that they're writing biographies about. And I sort of pulled out a whole lot of them, you know, women who've been very engaged, particularly around the 19th and earlier 20th century. They've been well known into it, you know, Florence Nightingale and various others of that. And every woman, every book, biographies, uh, or including some autobiographies, I pulled out about a well-known woman who'd done something significant, started off one way or the other way by stating so-and-so was a difficult woman. <laughs> so I decided the word difficult was actually synonymous with the fact that we meant we were being effective. So I decided to adopt it as a term. I think we need to be difficult women because if we're not difficult, they're going to ignore us. And mm. But it, it just sort of fascinated me that if you think about the women that are written up and are prominent and have been done really significant changes, that they do get described as difficult, you know, because it's not the characteristic of a, of a nice woman who hasn't done anything. <laughs> so that's how I mean, a sociologist, I mean, in a sense, as well as being a feminist, started looking at it, and it's true, you know, you have a look at what women get pulled down for, what women get criticised for, sticking your neck out and sort of saying something which isn't nice. Mm. And I think we might, need to, we might need to add those into our bios, Eva, difficult women. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think you know. Yeah, I, like I, just think, I just think we need to sort of accept the fact that it's a compliment. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to do a lot to be perceived as difficult. You've just got not to fulfil. You have to have to not apologise for your existence when you're about to make a statement. <laughs> and you've got to be fairly assertive about the fact that you know what you're talking about instead of being apologetic about it. A lot of women are apologetic, and they sort of mute the power of what they're saying by doing that and somewhere along the lines maybe it's my middle european background and you know in fact i came from a jewish background and i'm not religious but i certainly had that sort of outsider thing like that that i just went straight in and put my head down and butted when i wanted to do to make a point it's not very polite <laughs> <laughs> well we've just already discussed that being difficult is far better but even I was reading something about women in general when they write work emails going oh I'm just wondering or I'm just wondering and that apologetic tone and I have read that and I have never done that again because I was yeah. doing that and I thought yeah. oh I why have I been doing that you know so I've been really careful just with those little bits of communication to not be apologetic about. I'm not just wondering, I want to know this, you know, like, <laughs> and it's okay. I, I think that um, women who 
who resists this idea we should be meek or that a man should um, be in control or if we do anything to, to resist this idea of, um, of the patriarchy continuing, as soon as we do anything like that, we consider difficult. Mm. And I, I guess I either we have to eliminate the whole concept of difficult women or we have to just all be difficult <laughs> and, and, make, and make difficult woman the ultimate compliment and then, well, then I'll stop using it if we take it as a compliment. So. <laughs> I think I need a T-shirt. I'm going to find one. Yeah. <laughs> <Difficult> woman, <laughs> Renee, what do you think about the difficult woman? Yeah, I find it incredibly relevant. And I think one thing I really appreciated, sorry to go back to you again, Eva, but I just found Eva's article really interesting in the um, in the collection, just talking about how women also perpetuate um, this kind of uh, masculine idea of the difficult yeah. woman. Mm. And, you know, I just found our culture is very truth-averse. So if you even state the bloody obvious of what's happening in a workplace or, or something like that. You're actually just stating what's happening and what most people are thinking, but if you state it, you'll seem to be the problem. And it yeah. makes it really difficult to be authentic in workplaces. And I've found it really shocking that also happens within universities where, where you'd think there was a, a central quest for truth. Um, so this has all been very enlightening over the past few years for me. But what I find is if you don't do that thing where you qualify or you... Um, dumb down what you, what you're trying to stay and you stay with it that eventually uh, you earn people's respect and they come around and actually some people will rally around you and that's yeah. been really um, a- another thing that I've learned but it takes an enormous amount of self-belief an enormous amount of will to hold that space and to fend off self-doubt as you, as this um, kind of cultural backlash happens um, yeah. as you speak your truth so yeah and ha- how often you know, can you do that? It, it takes an enormous amount of energy and you also need to be employable. In writing opinion pieces um, for like journalistic opinion pieces, that's exactly what you're doing You because that's what you're being paid for. You're basically yeah. paid to just spout your opinion and we have to have the confidence. Well, I think we also have to have the confidence to speak our truth on our own terms. And another enormous pressure I found in the university context is that you are seen to be more um, reliable and accurate if you take the emotional content out of what it is that you're saying. But sometimes the emotional content is absolutely yeah. imperative that so you're talking about um, a protest that took place at Row 8, which was a, what I'd give a paper on. And um, often um, men will come up and try and help me with my paper afterwards because of the emotional content that's in yeah. it. And I just find that, you know, they, they feel so unsettled by the inclusion of the emotional content that mm. somehow I, I might need help with my, um, yeah, with the way that I think academically. And I've found this really, really fascinating as well. So I think we very much need to stick with telling our truth on our own terms. And it, I don't think that emotions and rationality are polar opposites. Um, I think sometimes emotions, like rage, um, can be very rational responses to situations. And, and also have to the... I think part of that is also having the courage to stick your neck out and say, and when people say, where did you read that? Say, I thought of it myself. And they all get very shocked because, you know, somehow or other, if you can't footnote something, you know, it doesn't exist in academia, you know. And so I think, again, you know, sometimes we are innovators in a lot of these areas. People haven't written about them. They've been sort of off the agenda because men have been sort of setting the criteria and things like that. And if you say, yes, but... 
when I was working my way through some data, I really came to the conclusion that X, Y, Z, you know, you can interpret it this way. And they said, oh, you know, have you got a footnote for that? And he said, no, I just thought it when I came to the research. <laughs> and they said, sort of look as if to say, fancy that, you know, you've got to hide suggesting you can actually think of something. So I, I just that. think... There's a similar thing in, um, in First Nations politics and First Nations history, which is a lot of history for um, Aboriginal people, particularly for Aboriginal women, is oral history. And so often mm. you you write something down and someone says, where'd you hear that? It's like, well, I heard it from one of my aunties or it's oral history from my family or it's oral history I picked up in Alice Springs in a, in a town camp. Mm. And people won't accept that as truth. But, um, and, and one thing we have to, um, that we, I'm having to fight against is this idea that it's only, it's only history when it's written down. Oh, yeah. But lies can be written down just as easily. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I don't do, I'm attached to the Indigenous units at UTS to the Reciberance units, and I mean, I've done quite a lot of work looking at some of the stuff around Indigenous stuff, and a lot of it is framed very much in a way that's come through oral traditions, and it doesn't have the same boring something or other that a lot of sort of Western male theories and ideas have. But sometimes it's very hard for us to actually ask questions and sort of think about how we get there. But I think that's something that one has to emphasise, that often listening well to things and then talking about them is a very good way of, of putting out the sort of stuff that women do talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and all of those things are just... Yeah, they're so important, you know, that speaking your own truth and you know, mm. listening to oral histories and, you know, the, I thought of it myself, you know, just these simple things, I think they can make mm. a huge difference. Now, in the introduction, Liz talks about the second, ways of, uh, second wave of feminism, a time she describes of extraordinary hope and inspiration. She also says that now we need to rethink what we can do to create a safer, stronger, fairer and just country for ourselves. And we can see that in the news every day that we read it or listen to it for ourselves our family our friends and our daughters now I want to know a what feminism means to each of you but I also want to know because it really frustrates me when people say they aren't feminist I want to know how you respond to that way of thinking yeah I find that really tricky um I guess they they are coming from a male paradigm and see that they might be rejected within that that way of seeing things and so they're distancing themselves from feminism which is really unfortunate um, because divided we we don't go as far and for me um, feminism was incredibly important thing to um, come across at university and to meet extraordinary women. Like, you know, universities are very different places now. But, you know, I remember going to a lecture with this lecturer. I can't remember her name now. It started with Z. But she had this sharp bra, you know. So she got up and gave this lecture and just wearing this sharp bra. And she was the most extraordinary thinker and incredibly expansive. But she was really out there. And, and to have these, you know, I came from Raleigh Stone, which was a small community in the hills, quite, you know, Christian. And so to come, you know, to the green pastures of Murdoch University and have these extraordinary uh, female role models for me was really life-changing and, and really empowering. And, um, yeah, I guess I want to be part of that and I want to put my energy behind it and, um, you know, I now work in primary schools and, and teach the, the young women that I work with um, how to be strong within that as well and um, have amazing female role models. So... Yeah, I, it makes me feel sad when women see that as something 
to disassociate themselves from. Mm. Claire, what about you? I think part of the problem we're having in our current society is um, propagandists have misinformed people what feminism is. Yeah. And um, this is, there's all these kind of notions of what a feminist is or what feminism is about that are incredibly false. And the people who say they're not feminists, it's because they've, they've heard these ideas of what feminism is and are rejecting it. I mean, I've, I've been, I've kind of seen myself as a feminist since I was about 18 and I'm, I'll be 47 soon. So that's a, lo- a lot of years to kind of unpack and listen to and examine and understand feminism. And I think m- most of the people who, um, who think they're feminists don't have that grounding in, in the history of feminism or, or in why feminism exists. In, in a way, it's, it's like people say that when you haven't had to fight for freedom, you forget what the fight was. Yeah. Um, people who haven't, women who haven't had to fight um, forget um, what things were like. And I often think of the, um, the queer rights movements. These days, people, um, I've seen people who are like 10, 15 years younger than me who don't, have, don't remember the, the, um, the queer rights battles of the 80s and 90s and, mm. and don't realise how much easier they have it now than it was back then. And I suppose feminism is kind of a, a bit further on in that same amnesia that feminism, the feminist fight for rights isn't over. But there's this amnesia about it, this thought that um, either the battle was over or that the battle wasn't worth fighting. And those, those um, ideas are both untrue. It's definitely not over. There's still fights to fight. And it was definitely worth what, what was done. So I think it's important that we, I suppose, start re-educating people on what feminism is and what it was for. Mm. Eva, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm an original second wave feminist, so to speak, and I, my feminism started very early. I have very clear remembrance at the age of three when I was first went to uh, childcare. I wanted a drum when they were handing out the instruments, and I was told very firmly by the teacher, the boys got the drums and the tambourines, and the girls got the uh, triangles and uh, something equally ineffective. I can't remember what the other thing was. Uh, and so, I mean, I just really got angry and I said, I'm not going to be told I can't do things because I'm a girl and went storming home and sort of complained to my mother and <laughs> decided from then on I was a feminist. <laughs> I didn't even know what the word meant at that stage, but I was very clear about the fact that people were not going to tell me I couldn't do things because I was a girl. And it sort of stuck with me, you know, and eventually I sort of got to read him and de Beauvoir and it sort of explained a lot to me. And then in the early 70s, got very much involved with the women's movement, with the women's electoral lobby and various other things. And not just, I mean, I know I'm quite a bit older than the rest of you. Uh, I was sort of thinking about it and I've been trying to write about it. And I think part of the problem is that the feminism, that the second wave feminism, we didn't actually get to what we intended to do because what we intended to do was to create genuine equality by changing the structures and by changing the values. So what we've done is over the next 10 years, we actually got the legal stuff done. We got the anti-discrimination stuff, we got the equal pay, we got all these sort of laws through. And then we hit neoliberalism. And neoliberalism is the most anti-feminist thing you could think about because it's what it actually covers is only the things that get exchanged for money. 
So it's an absolute disaster for feminism because a lot of feminists thought, oh, well, I'm sure we can manage the market. And they've been co-opted into it. And, it and I think feminism's been stuck for the last 20 to 30 years since the sort of whole neoliberal stuff took over. You know, we're falling backwards. We haven't closed the wage gap. We haven't sort of... We, Women who get through, we spend far too much time talking about getting women into positions of power, and most of the time when they get there, they only get there because they're not going to challenge the system. You know, very few of them get round to actually changing things, and far too many women got sucked in by the fact that the only thing that we could do out of life was uh, join the, uh, you know, get into the workforce and contribute to, to, to monetary stuff, to the gross domestic product, which I keep telling people is A, gross, B, definitely not domestic and certainly not productive, because it only counts things that are monetized. And if you're looking at the indigenous stuff for a start, I mean, the entire indigenous population would be excluded from any sort of records if you just took the economic stuff, because they, you know, they didn't have money they didn't have that sort of valuing of things, and yet they managed to find some incredibly complex answers to quite difficult sort of issues around astronomy, around land, around distance, around various other things. So completely outside the framework. And women have let that go. So I think that, quite frankly, I don't think we've got a very clear women's movement. We've also fallen into identity politics and beat each other up, you know, in all sorts of odd ways, some of the anti-trans stuff and the anti-stuff. I don't know what other people feel about that. But I mean, to sort of actually try and bar them all and not recognise that gender is actually a spectrum, not a binary, really puts us in a very difficult sort of uh, position of nature is the only thing that counts. I mean, a sociologist is thing counts and relationships count. I mean, you can date it back. Sorry, I'm giving you a whole lecture on this one, but I just think it needs to be thought about is that, you know, if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, which was very much Northern European white male, they divided the work into the paid and the unpaid at that stage. And the men did the paid work, the women stuck with the unpaid work and anything we do in unpaid work is therefore of no value. I'm one of the people who's pushing for universal basic income because I think it's the only way we can actually get coverage for the contributions that we make unpaid. And that would be very useful in the Indigenous community. It would be very useful there because it doesn't have the idea that everything has to be done for money. I think modernity also kind of taught us that we were these discrete individuals and that I'm separate from you and you're separate from her and, and that we're also separate from nature. And That's a nasty thing called neoliberal economics that decided that we were homo economicus. Modernity actually does cover collectivist type stuff, but it's economic stuff that doesn't because unless you've got self-interest, you don't have profits. You know, when you're based on a Cartesian dualism that kind of separates everything from everything else and that, that is what allows you to then commodify something, believing yeah. that it's quite separate from itself. And, you know, then it's seen as somehow we're being romantic when we feel or, or we're romanticising something when we feel connected to the block or across from us full of trees and then, you know, that gets, um, you know, cleared for a home and we're devastated yeah. and we feel like that we shouldn't be. And, you know, so this, this lack of connection to land, this lack of connection to each other, um, you know, that is, it is coming from our consumer economy, but it's also coming from that kind of Cartesian way of seeing things of self and other. And I think yeah. that that belief in that individualism makes it hard for us to come together as women, you know, because we believe 
that we, you know, I, I do remember earlier on, um, you know, in, in the early 90s, thinking that, that I had to be independent. Mm. And this has been, and that independence came, I thought, from feminism. And I was, so I strove to do that and to be independent and to be separate from other people for so long. And then suddenly realised I was interdependent. And I think, like you're saying, Eva, we have to shift our whole way of thinking to recognise mm. I think we've got to revive the idea that feminism is about valuing the things that are important to us as social beings, as connected beings, mm. as part of, you know, part of community, part of society, part of all of those things which are no longer talked about. We lost the social mm. off the agenda. I mean, economists, I keep telling people under the age of 50, economists was thought as rather boring dead shits when I first went to university in the, in the 1950s. By the 1970s, sociologists were fashionable. By the 1980s, these sort of boring people called economists had taken over, literally. And that's when we had the paradigm shift. And I think we need to get back to some of those sorts of values that go back, as I say, to what we can learn from Indigenous people about whole lots of things that we can do without that we think is essential. But we've also got to put sort of feminist female values on about the fact that we've been dumped, whether we like it or not. I don't think we're naturally all good parents, but, you know, that that was sort of left to the household, to the women, to things there. And any time that any of those skills turn up in the paid workforce, they're always undervalued. And all the values about what is worthwhile are still very masculinized. We did not change them. So getting more women into senior positions doesn't mean that they get changed. They just get sucked in. <laughs> yeah. Not all of them, but, you know, and, and I think, you know, the women's groups, feminist groups are very ineffective at the moment in, in those things. And if you're going back to the issue about people who are saying, I'm not a feminist, I think a very large number of those also get co-opted into the idea that you have to be a man-hater to be a feminist. Yeah. You get that sort of discussion all the time. I like men. You say, yeah, well, you can be a feminist and like men, and they get quite surprised because there's, there's that mythology that's been pushed out that all feminists are male-haters, you know, mm-hmm. that's why they're feminists, and I think that's one of the things that sort of creeps out with all the other conspiracy theories. Yeah. And, and they're all built, like you say, to, like I think Claire said, you said before, to silence women and to yeah. oppress you further and to make you afraid to speak out and take up that space. So I think you're absolutely right. Claire, in your piece you talk about how everybody in Australia should have strong negative emotions regarding the stolen generation, black yeah. war massacres, Aboriginal incarceration rates and all of us agree with that. What can we do better as a society? I think um, for the, I think the first thing we need to do is is start telling the truth about um, what Australia is. Uh, Australia is not particularly honest with itself. Mostly, I, I, I couldn't. If I was to be like um, honest to the point of almost being mean about it, white Australia is not honest with itself about what white Australia is or not on white Australia is not honest about what Australia is. Australia is a settler colonial state. It has been since 1788 and it still is. Um, I, I've just finished the first draft of my next book, which is a nonfiction book called Lies, Damned Lies, which is an unpacking of settler colonialism in Australia and the way that Australian history, the, the mythology of of certain things, certain aspects of Australian culture have been mythologised and taught to us as history. And it's time its time that Australia starts being honest with itself. And if Australia is honest with itself, it's going to be angry with itself. Mm. And 
but if Australia gets angry with itself, things might start to change. And we need to, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, you can hear I'm angry. I'm, 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 every time I think about um, settler colonialism in Australia, I get angry. I get really angry. And I, I, think, I think most First Nations people are angry. Whether we tell you we're angry or not, we are all angry about it. And the, the, the classic example is, is closing the gap. They, had, they spent billions of dollars on closing the gap, which certain members of the white Australian populace say was money spent on Aboriginal people. Well, it wasn't. It was spent on, in, it was given to companies and organisations run by white people to not spend on Aboriginal people, basically most of it went to admin costs. And in like 12 years of closing the gap, of the, I think it was 10, no, the 12, there were 12 um, things that they had to do to achieve closing the gap. They had 12 goals and they achieved precisely none of them. And people aren't angry about it. You, you watch this and you go, like, why? Firstly, why are people not angry that um, Aboriginal people die on average 20 years younger than, than um, white Australians? Why are we not angry about that first? Mm. And secondly, why are we not angry about the about um, government after government after government, both parties throwing like literally billions of dollars at a project that has achieved nothing. When if they gave the money to Indigenous people, it would have achieved more. If they'd actually given, if they'd gone out there and given a proportion of that money to Aboriginal people, just you know, to give us all, the, for example, the chance to buy a house, mm. rather than spending this ridiculous amount of money on, on utter shit, then we wouldn't have then ever to be better off. And I think Australians need to be angry about that. Mm -hmm. Can I just say on that one, because I've, I've just spent part of the last few days looking at uh, the issue of the cashless debit card, which I think is one of the worst things that's happened. And I've written quite a lot of stuff on that. And, I mean, it's completely absurd. It doesn't work. And the government is absolutely convinced it's going to go ahead with it. I mean, I've evaluated some of the evaluations and written stuff up, pointing out that it actually is not achieving anything. So it's the same thing with the closing the gap. The way they defined closing the gap, the way they define the need for money in Aboriginal communities and so on, is actually even unfairer in many ways than where you started from. And, this, and so there's an absolute lack of recognition and listening to the things there. And I mean, you get people like Pat Turner, who desperately tries to bring the decision-making back to the Indigenous community because we've had evidence for a very long time that they can run things much better and understand what goes on and achieve things, and we have evidence of it, but the government doesn't listen. But unfortunately, you know, the, the, the old colonial assumptions still are there. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody heard Twiggy Forrest because he did the Boyer Lectures, which I did some years ago. I got so cross when they offered it to him. I sort of sent it, you know, uh, tweeted that I thought I might have to withdraw the fact that I was an ex-Boyer lecturer. But his final Boyer lecture was a complete attack on Aboriginal people under the excuse that they were his best friends. He grew up with them, so therefore he understands why they fucked everything up. And it is appalling, and that was on the ABC this week. So we're not really moving very far on that, you know, in, in, in the sense that the assumptions about... The fact that, you know, that this was terra nullius and various other things are still very deeply embedded in the Australian culture. I mean, I'm part of the migrant group that came in after the war. So, I mean, I'm at the other end of the, you know, the great white Australian thing there when you sort of turned up here and realised 
when I looked up the uh, things there that after the war, my family's Jewish, they actually had a limit of 12,000 uh, or was it 9,000 Jews a year as immigrants because they, we, we didn't assimilate, you know, and that was after hit, all Hitler's best efforts. So we're not, we don't have a very good record of history in all sorts of different ways. So, I mean, when ScoMo turns up and carries on about the fact, you know, all those marvellous things about Australia, I just want to chuck. I just, I really appreciate Claire's point that we have a huge problem with telling in Australia. And, you know, I think that I found it so incredibly shocking to think I was reasonably aware as an Australian and just over the past five years have been researching, researching, trying to think, you know, we're, you know, especially in re with regard to Indigenous, not that... Mm. Uh, especially in regard to asylum seekers, researching where did we lose our sense of a fair go? And so I'm kind of going back and back. And the further I went back, the more unsettled I became about Australia's history because then, mm. of course, you come up against the Australia policy and you start to realise that that fair go was actually only ever articulated for white males and it yeah. deliberately <coughs> wanted to exclude Indigenous people deliberately wanted to exclude women and of course people of, of Asian and like either saying Jewish origins as well but I think even more than that um, you know Ross Gibson talks about us being haunted as a country and that's something that I think is really true and I did not realize the incredible violence with which this country was forged and it's been uh, really shocking recently to start looking looking into the massacre maps, for example, that mm -hmm. The Guardian has been putting out. And, you know, it was really moving to read Claire's piece and know that her, her family's related or, or her family are connected to the people who were involved in the massacre in Ravensthorpe, mm -hmm. which is not, not too far from where I live. But, you know, teaching um, at a university and finding out that the students who, who live in this area don't, don't know mm -hmm. about that massacre. And even for myself, I've tried to be informed and tried to um, be aware of these things. But, you know, only in the last few years, like, found out that in the Kimberley, where some of my research has taken place, that there used to be about 30,000 Aboriginal people um, in the 1880s. And by the early 19, 1900s, there were only 5,000 Indigenous people left. And suddenly you understand why we have such a huge problem to turn around and face the violence with which this country was forged and why we can't actually face the violence with which we continue to patrol our borders. And um, that's been a really difficult thing to come to terms with, that the whole mythology that I was brought up with about my fair go country, it, it is a myth. It's based mm. on a myth. And you're right, they're difficult conversations to have, you know, with yourself, with your country, but they're essential if we want to if we want to make change. So I'm so glad that you brought them up. Now, mm. I have a last question, which I ask all my guests, and it is, why do you write? Claire, let's start with you. Um, I write because I'm aware that story is what defines us. Um, each of us is defined by the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and the stories we tell about our culture. And everything we are is just story. We, 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 I don't think we're things of flesh. I think we're, we're creatures of story, including our history and our academia. Everything is just, is just stories. And I write because I think if I can just find the right story, I can change the way people think for the better. I can, uh, if I can find, just find the right story, I might help to 
um, at least yeah, be part of the work to um, destroy settler colonialism, which is my life's work. <laughs> Great answer. Renee, what about you? Why do you write? Well, it's a tough question. Um, I There's a lot of writers who will say that, you know, like Mary Oliver says, my endless and proper work is to pay attention. And I find that such an incredibly beautiful vocation. So for me, writing is about paying attention and it helps me to notice what is going on around me and to understand what is going on around me. But perhaps most importantly and, and relating to what we've been talking about in this podcast is to connect. Mm -hmm. So by having to be entirely present, so for to just the most beautiful thing happened this morning, you know, where I just happened to stumble across a Borden's white-tailed cockatoo feeding in a tree and she let me stand five metres from her and watch her feed and I thought I should get back and do my writing and I thought this is your work <laughs> and I stood there just watching her feed for 20 minutes and it was one of the most beautiful moments that you know I've experienced and then that is my work to then come back and try you know this is an endangered bird and how can I write about this bird for another person so they can be with me in that moment and feel connected and invested in this creature so I think of the metaphor for me about what I do with writing is, is trying to sew myself back into the world against all that disconnection we've been talking about and sew others back in with me. Wow, that is beautiful. Beautifully said. I love that. Eva, why do you write? Thinking about that when you asked the question, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> a lot of the writing I do <clears throat> is because people ask me and it's a good thing that I do get asked you know, to put a chapter in here or write something for that or do an article for something or somebody and and that makes gives me the initiative. It makes somebody wants to hear what I'm saying. I've got a chance of actually getting my ideas through, you know, so I, I will write things. I write things in some of the papers. I write things in journal. I've got a whole lot of chapters and books. I tried to count them the other day. <laughs> some things I'd even forgotten I'd written. And the sad part of it was I reread some of them and thought, God, I could have written it today, you know, because <laughs> so, so few is often you rewrite write something and you think, it's changing and you look back at it and you've written something 20, because I'm old, 30 odd years ago, and you think, I said it then, you know, am I still saying it the same way? It's also a way that I learn things. It's a way that gets my thinking in order. It makes me put things together in a way that I wouldn't put it together in just talking to. So I get the sort of pleasure out of using it as a way of sorting through things and feeling that I've come to something. But with me, it's very much a sort of communication thing. It's a, a way of getting my stuff out further and the way of, of actually make, looking at it when I've written it down and think, does this make sense? So it's very much a, a thing. I'm, I'm, not a writer, I'm not a writer first. I wanted to write books. I wanted to write novels, but I think I've just decided I could read them more easily than I could write them. It's so interesting, Eva, when you say that you wrote articles or essays 30 years ago and they can still be relevant today and you're saying the same thing and I think that's why what is so frustrating and what does fuel us with rage is that change is so slow you know we're ready for it we've been ready for you've been ready for it since you didn't want to bang that triangle Eva but it's so <laughs> slow and I think that's what's so frustrating but thank you so much Eva Renee Claire it's been an enlightening chat and thank you for being honest and and being full of rage but also being full of hope because without these conversations we're 
where we won't inch forward slowly, slowly, you know, we'll stand still and none of us want that. And as Liz says in the very beginning of the book, rage can help change the world. So let us go forth with fear and courage and rage to try and save it. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It seems funny that we're putting together a book where this sort of slogan might be get cranky and do something. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great title as well. That might be the title of the podcast. Get cranky and do something. <laughs>